So what is a biblical worldview? We talked that it is a, and if you missed it, um, it's up on, uh, the, the podcast is up. It's up on SoundCloud or whatever. So you can, you can get that. But what is a, a biblical worldview? It's the framework for interpreting reality as God communicates it. That's important because all of this craziness that's going on around us in our world, we need to know how to interpret it. We need to know how to understand it. And a biblical worldview is this, um, the way, this framework for interpreting this reality. But it's not just our way of interpreting it. It's how God has communicated to us how to interpret it. And where do we get that from? This is the interaction part. The Bible, right. That should have been a giveaway. Biblical worldview, the Bible is where we get our source from. So why is it important? Well, the importance of a biblical worldview is what happens is so many people try to understand life and they exclude the author of life. So how can you understand what's going on in the world? How can you understand what's going on in creation? How can you understand what's going on in life if, some, if you're going to exclude the one who created everything? And, and that's where we've got to help. Uh, and, and we're not going like, to point fingers at our friends or family or whatever. What we need to do is we need to make sure that our understanding, our response includes the author of life so that we can then display that to others. And we'll talk more in a minute about that. We also um, identified that a biblical worldview is not just one's personal faith expression. Because people say, well, that's just what I think, and that's what, but it's not, a biblical worldview is not an individual's or a, one's personal faith expression. It's not just a theory. It's an all-consuming way of life. And that all-consuming way of life, uh, it applies to every sphere, every contact, every relationship in which you and I have. And we have to let that, we have to understand that. This is where, where it, this um, divides us, uh, or divides the biblical worldview um, apart from any other worldview. This affects every single second of your life. Well, that's a big statement. Yes, it, it is. It's a huge statement. That's why it's so very important that we have a true, solid biblical worldview. And that's what we're going to kind of talk about today is developing that biblical worldview. So if you're taking notes, um, that's going to be the title here, Developing a Biblical Worldview. Uh, I, I'm, before you type A'ers are, are like, oh, sweet, he's going to give us a bunch of steps and a bunch of things so we can, we can do this. I, I ain't got steps. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus in, I'm going to press in on one main thing, and I'm going to explain uh, some other characteristics, and, and we're going to take a little uh, uh, assessment. You all came to church today, and you're going to get a test. And, and everybody has to take the test. If you, you, know, you know, hit the, the neighbor next to you, and you want to get out of here, I don't, I don't like tests. You got to take a test. This is for, for your own good. Trust me on it. But what we need to understand is this developing a biblical worldview has a foundation. Now, last week we talked about our responsibility as believers in Christ is to respond to life events with a God-honoring perspective. That was the big idea. That was what we, want. we, we, we talked about, that, and that's that biblical worldview. Now, this week our, our, our big idea is that a God-honoring perspective or a biblical worldview must be developed, not assumed. 
Because I think that that's the, the, one of the, the, the key characteristics and, and the key failures with inside the, the, the church in America, not just our, every church, is people assume things. Um, and I, I don't need you to tell me. I know what, when you assume what it does. Everybody giggle for a second. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Right? We, we know what it does. Okay, come on, we got to be alive here. Yeah, yeah there it is. So uh, we don't need to assume, we need to develop. Don't assume, we need to develop. Um, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to press in on one, um, one aspect or, or the, the foundation of all of this, uh, of developing a God-honoring perspective. Um, and, and I want to press in and, and, and I want us to understand that a God-honoring perspective is established and sustained so it's established and sustained by the gospel. So the, the, the big point is going to be the gospel today. Oh, I know the gospel. Okay, that's good. I'm glad you do know the gospel. And it's the beginning point of having a biblical worldview. For those of you that, that, that need a refresher on, okay, what's the gospel? I know it's, it's Jesus. He died on the cross. We explain the gospel here in a very um, clear and concise way. The gospel is the good news of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity. The good news of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity. Okay, what was God's plan? It was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All right, so when we talk about the gospel, we all need to be focusing in on the same thing. Because the gospel is not, well, this is my interpretation of it, and this is my... That is what, if we don't have a solid foundation of, of what the gospel is, when we try to build our biblical worldview off of this gospel, it, 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 can, um, it, it can be like uh, convoluted if it's, not, if it's not a solid foundation. Everybody knows, that everybody who has a house, you know that the, the, the foundation has to, be, has to be good because if the foundation isn't good, the rest of the house kind of leans and falls or whatever. So the gospel is what establishes and sustains um, our biblical worldview. Now, with that in mind, and you're already thinking, okay, you're talking fastly. I, I, I get it. Let's take a breath. Let's get ready for the, those two big words that I talked about last week that I said I was going to talk about today. And those two big words are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Let's talk about orthodoxy real quick. And understanding why we have to, we, we need to know this word. Orthodoxy, it, it can mean a whole lot long, have, have a whole long um, uh, definition attached to it. But it, 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 can, uh, it can be defined as the doctrine that is approved by the church for the, uh, for the actions or the liturgy within inside the church and all this other stuff. But what we need to understand orthodoxy as, as is right belief. So just, just keep, it, keep it simple, orthodoxy, right belief. So remember, and, and if you've been here any time or any amount of time, you've heard me say that, that if we're going to change the way in which we act, we've got to change the way in which we think, right? Think, feel, act. The way in which you think determines the way in which you feel, and the way in which you feel determines the way in which you act. So if you want to change the way in which you act, you've got to change the way in which you think. I've been preaching that for years now, six, seven, eight years. Um, James McDonald, he, he stole my idea, and he's written a couple books on it. Not knocking James, I like Dr. McDonald, but uh, if you listen to Moody at noon, um, that's his big push right now, and he, 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 he stole it from me. <laughs> I stole it from Rick Warren, so it doesn't matter anyway. So it, it, it's continuing, it's just being passed on. I would love to think that, yeah, James McDonald was listening to my preaching. He's like, hey, it's a good idea. That little small-town pastor will never even know the difference. Jerk. 
Um, but what we need to do, that, that's that, that thinking is that, that, that right belief. All right? And that we have to have the right belief because the way in which we think is going to determine this outcome here, which is uh, the orthopraxy. And, and for you, the, the, the smart people in the room, which excludes us, Jake, um, the smart people in the room. I said us. Oh, give me that stink eye. The, the orthopraxy means right practice. And I think that it's important that we have, and you're going to see here in a second, that when we're talking about uh, developing a biblical worldview, we understand and we need to understand that a, worldview, a biblical worldview is not only right thinking, it's right practice. Because you can think a, a whole lot, and if you don't practice what it is that you're thinking, there's a problem. And I'll tell you this real quick. So orthodoxy without orthopraxy is called legalism. All right? Orthopraxy without orthodoxy is called liberalism. We have to have both. So when we're talking about a biblical worldview, we're talking about this balance of right belief and right practice. We, last week, we started with the, the, the theme of uh, verse being um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And then this, this, this biblical worldview, this mind in which we're supposed to have, uh, it, it says there, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This, having this biblical worldview is, is we want the mind in which Jesus had. We want to think like Jesus thought. And as I was putting this together and I'm thinking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, I love how the, um, the New Living Translation uh, translated this same verse because I think it helps us even further our understanding of what a biblical worldview involves, this orthodoxy, this orthopraxy. In the New Living Translation, Philippians 2.5, it, it, it says this. Remember, same verse. It says, you must have this or the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. I love this in the fact, because when I say attitude, every single one of you in here has an idea and understands what an attitude entails, right? Because, yeah, whew, yeah, I know. An attitude is not just words, right? It's not just thinking. An attitude involves actions. We, we tracking? All right, don't elbow your spouse right now. Have you listen to the preacher? Attitude, mm-hmm. Yeah, but we get that. And I think it's important that we understand that, that this biblical worldview is, is that, that, that orthodoxy, that orthopraxy, it's that attitude in which we're to have. Now, last week, we, we, I gave you the need for it. And this week, I, I want to give you the, the, the how we're to develop that a little bit. I, I told you it starts with the gospel and understanding the gospel. But I, before we get into um, our, our text, and if you want to you know, get ready, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Um, back in Mark chapter 12, and, um, but before we get there, what I want to do, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Now, some of you are like, oh, come on, yes, that's, that's hey, good. You're stressing it already. You need, you need this. Trust me when I say this. Now, when, when we take this quiz, there's, there, there's just five questions, all right? When we take this quiz, I'm going to give you the question, let you think about it, and then I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give you the answer. So, yeah, everybody's like, okay, I can take this. But in between the, the question and the answer, you have to answer this question yourself honestly, not out loud, but to yourself. Answer this question honestly. And if, you, if you're a, a note taker, write the questions down because I think this, these are good questions to, can, to, to wrestle with maybe all week. 
Um, uh, they're, they're not, they're not, uh, I'll repeat the questions. They're not, they're not very long. So five questions, and, I, and I've written this in the sense of five possibilities that your perspective for life may not be or may not contain a solid biblical worldview. So these are possibilities. If you're th- sitting here like, I've got a good biblical worldview. I've got a solid biblical worldview. Awesome. Use this as a tool to reinforce your solid biblical worldview. If you're sitting here and you're saying, I, I think I do, I'm not sure. Okay, use this to assess it. If you're here and you're like, I don't have a biblical worldview. All right, use this as how to then build one. All right? Question number one. We ready? Are you ignorant of what the Bible says? Now, when, now here, I'm not, I'm not pressing in on, and I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm, I'm asking a simple question. Are you ignorant of what the Bible says? What does that mean, ignorant? I don't like that terminology. That's not politically correct. No, 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 no. Being ignorant of something is not knowing something. Honestly, just not knowing it. And, and I ask this question because if we say, okay, all right, am I ignorant of what the Bible says? Well, there are things that, that you are ignorant, that we all are ignorant of what the Bible says, because we don't know everything. If you know everything, here, come up, let's go, teach us, please. But there are going to be things that you are going to encounter that you're going to be ignorant of. Let me give you an example, because examples always help. So you have to ask, am I ignorant, or are you ignorant of what the Bible says? And it's, it's they just don't know. It's, I just don't know. An example is if someone doesn't know what the Bible says about the sanctity of human life, it's going to be difficult for them to have a biblical worldview. Now, I, I, I say that. I mean, that's just one example. What does the Bible say? So if, the, if people don't understand and they, don't, they, they haven't um, uh, wrapped their head around that, 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 that uh, God, he, he clearly says that, that life starts in, in, in the womb, it, it's at conception is when life begins, well, that's going to determine your biblical worldview. The Bible says that this is when a baby begins, not at this point or at this point or at this point or at this point. The Bible is very clear. So it, it, maybe, maybe some are ignorant of that fact. And you can insert whatever. I'm just using that as an example because it's, you know, it's a hot button uh, topic right now. So, so understanding what the Bible says in, in each of these areas is, is important. And there are going to be areas in which you're ignorant. So if, if you're saying, yeah, I'm ignorant in, in, in areas or you, how about this? Somebody asks you a question, you don't know the answer, you, you can say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know. Because you're ignorant in, those, in that area. Now, the, the, the key for ignorance is education. All right, and that's the beautiful part that, that we, we, we know that, that, that Jesus said when, when confronted, and we we're going to talk today, that the, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And strength. God wants you to be smart. He doesn't want you to be dumb. And he doesn't want you to be ignorant walking around in the dark. No. So if there is something that you're ignorant about, you need education. Maybe you need to ask somebody to help you. Awesome. If you don't know and you don't know, I don't know what the Bible says and I don't even know where to start. Ask somebody. 
There are plenty of people that can help guide you in that. Now, and I'm going to say that, and I'm going to put a disclosure there. Because if you ask someone every time that, that you uh, encounter something that you don't know about the Bible, and you never do any investigation on your own, that's called laziness. Slothfulness is what the Bible says. Slothfulness, right? I love that word. It makes me foam at the mouth. <laughs> Slothfulness. So, no, and what I say is there are, are, are things that, that, that people just say, I don't know what it says, and they just, I'm ignorant of it. And they don't do any of their investigation. I'm going to ask, I'm going to go ask preacher. Okay, I'm not opposed to you asking me questions, but there are some questions that you can find out answers very easily too. If you do your homework and then you can't find it out, or maybe you get some answers and they're like, I just don't know how what to do with this. Bring it to someone. Bring it to, to, to one of the elders. Bring it to myself. Bring it to a ministry leader to say, hey, what does this mean? Totally okay with that. So if you're ignorant um, what the, of what the Bible says, the, the key is, is education. Question number two. This moves beyond, and, and, and you'll see how they ramp up, and some of them actually um, overlap a little bit. Question number two is, do you reject what the Bible says on a certain issue? Do you reject what the Bible says on a certain issue? Now, this is not, you can't claim ignorance. This is, you know what the Bible says, but you say, "Mm, I'm not going to do it. I know what the Bible says about X, Y, Z, but I'm choosing to do A, B, C. You're rejecting what the Bible says. This is the buffet, the Bible buffet, where, where people, they go down the line, and okay, I want a little bit of this, I want a little bit of this, Oop, I'm going to skip over that, I want a little bit of this, and I want a little bit of this. Yeah, but look at all the good things that I'm doing. As we're going to find out here, you, you, you don't have, to, you don't have to, to, to look to me to judge. I'm not judging anyone, nor do you have to be upset with me if you fall into one of these categories, because this is what God says. It's not what Lee says. It's what, what, what God says. If you know that there's something that you're doing that is wrong, and you are not doing what you know is right, that's called sin. And you're wondering why you don't have, or you're saying, well, I got a biblical worldview. Okay, your biblical worldview, but you're not acting upon that. That's called hypocrisy. I don't think anybody wants to be inside that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That's what Jesus says. Now, again, I'm not attacking anybody. I think that that if we're going to understand what this worldview is and how we're to establish it, we need to understand that there are things that are going to have to change in our lives. If if, If we want God to work and to be the best that we can be and live up to the potential that God has for us, we have to understand there there may be some pruning that needs to take place. There's some things that, ah, I don't like it. I've said a hundred times at least, if you have read the Bible and you agree with everything in the Bible and there's nothing that you don't like, then you, I'll say you've never read the Bible. There are plenty of things that when I come across, I'm like, "Mm, dang. Instead of me reading the Bible, the Bible's reading me back and saying, okay, this has to change. And then I have a choice. Am I going to change it or am I not going to change it? So do you reject what the Bible says on a certain issue? So the the key for those who are going to say, yeah, you know what? There are some. What do I do? Repent. It's repentance. It's saying, okay, God, you're right. It's going to be difficult, but you're right. I'm going to align with your way of thinking, 
and I'm going to change my way. To repent means to change the way in which one thinks of something. So I'm going to repent of my sin. That's not doing it, oops, I'm sorry, forgive me. Doing it, oops, I'm sorry, forgive me. Doing it, oops, I'm sorry, forgive me. That, 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 that's not it. That's not repentance. That's what, what I always love to call situational justification. You feel bad in the moment, you ask for forgiveness. Well, the Bible says that, that, that God is uh, uh, faithful and he'll, he'll forgive us of our sins if we ask him. Yeah, he is. He's faithful and just. I mean, he's righteous. If we sin and ask for forgiveness, sin and ask for, and do the same thing over and over and over again, I'm going to say that you really don't have a good grasp of what the gospel is. I don't say that to make people mad. I just think that, come on, we, we, we've got to think. Like, this understanding of who Jesus is, who our God and our Savior is, is not what the world thinks. It's different. And, and, and this is going to come into our second one, or our third one, I'm sorry. So we have, the first one is, are you ignorant of what the Bible says? And, and the, the key is education for those to overcome that. Uh, two, do you reject what the Bible says on certain issues? And the key to that is repentance. Number three, are you more concerned with what the world thinks of you than what God thinks of you? Are you more concerned of what the world thinks? Or are you more concerned of what God thinks? The Bible tells us the fear of man will prove to be a snare. What does that mean? Fear, what does it mean, fear of man? If you're doing something because you don't want, if I'm doing something because I'm fearful of the way which Jake thinks about me and it's contrary to what God says, that's called fear of man. If you're operating and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm more concerned with what my buddies at work is going to think about me versus what God's going to think about me, that's a problem. That's hard. That, 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 that's, that's, that's an obstacle in, 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 that you need, to, um, you, you need to alleviate. You need to get rid of that obstacle in your life if you're going to have a, a solid biblical worldview. Because I'll tell you this, as, as a child of God, God is not going to allow that to continue on without opposition. The Bible says that God disciplines those whom he loves. Some of you are like, man, God loves me a lot. I get it. I get it. But when it's identified and we're saying, okay, I, what we have to understand is, is, is we're not of this world. Jesus says this, if you belong to the world, it would love you as, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. That, those are not comforting words for people. Especially with people that, that, that have the, the, the identity crisis and they're seeking this, this acceptance from everyone. We have to understand that the, it, it's God who has, has already accepted us as his children if we, if we put our faith and our trust in him. So if we're thinking, you know, that, you know the, the question, are you more concerned about uh, or with the world or what, what, with what the world thinks and what God thinks? If this is you... If you're fearful, because that's what it is, it's fear. The key is courage. You need some courage. If you're the cowardly, if you're the cowardly lion, you need some courage. Right? I should, I should have Jake do the, the Im imitation. He does a good job of that. <laughs> Teresa's thinking already in her head. Yeah, it does. So, but you need courage. How is courage developed? Usually courage is developed amongst friends, godly friends. 
You don't just develop courage on your own. Let me move on for sake of time here. Number four, are you influenced by the lies of the world? Are you influenced by the lies of the world? We have to understand that we have an enemy out there. And from the time that Adam and Eve was in the garden, garden, Satan has been using his ability to deceive and confuse mankind. And it, what he's going to do is he's going to use this powerful tool. It is a powerful tool. And he's going to get you to, to think the, uh, and to believe the lies and not the truth. What we have to understand is when, when, when we um, see a lie, we need to, to make a, a, a determination. And so if you're, if you're believing the lies of, of the world or if you are, are influenced by the lies of the world, the key to this is discernment. Discernment means choosing what is good over what is evil. And this is important. How, how do I know what's good? Okay, what does God say? That is what is good. If it's not what God said, it's, it, it's probably evil. I'm not saying every time. But we have to have that discernment. Number five. I think that this is the one that, that, that most people probably we're going to really relate to. Are you swayed by your circumstances and doubt God's promises? Are you swayed by your circumstances and doubt God's promises? I, I, I think that, that, that we, we, can, we can say, you know what? <sighs> That's me. And, and I, would, I would group in, 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 this, in this situation, in some situations, I should say, I would group five and one together. Maybe you're ignorant of the promise of what God said. Well, okay, that's legit. How do we know, again, how do we know what God's promise is? It says it in the, in, in the book, in, in the Bible. But the, the problem is, is when you do know what God's promise is, the promises are, and what, what the, the particular promise is for your situation, and then you still uh, look to your situation, and you don't look to what God says about that situation. It, it, some of you are like, hey, okay, I, I don't, I, I'm getting it, but I still have a trouble with whole promises. I, I, I picked one of these up when I walked in. If you don't know the promises of God, there are these little books that are out there. 199 Promises of God. It's a good place to get started. has a lot of different ones in it. It's got a little, uh, um, it tells about, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're thinking. Uh, use this as a resource. Pick one up, please. I'm tired of looking at them. Um, but know the promises of God. If you know the promises of God, you're going to be able to respond with the, the proper God-honoring perspective, the, the, the biblical worldview in which we need. If that's you, if you're, the, if you're doubting God's promises because your circumstances are overtaking you, the key is faith. The key is faith. Faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And I'll tell you this, you don't need more faith. You have all the faith in which you need. What you need to do is you need to exercise that faith. got to exercise that faith. Faith is like a muscle. If you don't use it, it just atrophies. It's weak. Press into, because here's the deal. We're in the faith business here, if you're not, if you're not aware. 
We believe in faith that God sent his son, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death for you and for me. He was buried and he rose on the third day and he's coming back again. That's, that's faith. We're living in that faith. Can we see him? No, we can't see him. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. So if you're like, I'm doubting, okay, exercise your faith. What does that look like? That looks different for every single person. Understand that if you don't exercise it, you're never going to get past what it is you're dealing with. And I, I, I believe this. I was listening to, to uh, a pastor this week, and, and I believe this, that, that, that problems and circumstances and, and, and issues that go on in our lives, God uses those as, as opportunities for growth. We just got to tr- trust that God's working in them. Even when we don't see, like, God, how can you let this happen? Even when we don't see it, we have to understand it. In faith, I know that God is greater than anything that we're facing. Those are the five questions. I, I'm not going to ask you how you did on those five questions. That's between you and God, but I, I think that the understanding and helping develop our biblical worldview, these questions will help you if you're honest. I told you to, to turn to uh, Mark chapter 12. And, and, and hold on with me another about 15 minutes. Can you, can you handle that? All right, all right, because I, I, if you... If you check out right now, you're going you're gonna to miss a good example, and then you're going to miss some, some good application, so some good nuggets that you're going to be able to stick in your pocket and you're going to be able to, to uh, take with you. Bless you. So uh, in Mark chapter 12, I'm going to read 20, 28 through 34 here. And what I want us to look here is, remember we talked about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I think this is a good view of that. Here, look, look, look with me. It says in verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him. Him being Jesus, he was talking to the Sadducees about the resurrection. Read, you can read you know, all that on your own. But so the scribe came up to him and said this, Which commandment is the most important of all? This is, this is familiar to you all. We, we all know this. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he, he starts out, he's identifying, okay, we have one God, and this is who we're talking about here. I, I love this. He says, the Lord, he, the Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim. He's saying Yahweh Elohim. So they, they know exactly who he's talking about. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Everybody, we've explained that extensively in the past. That's what we need to press into when we're being a disciple. It encompasses all of us. And he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these Look how the, the scribe responded. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other besides him. Notice how he's taking the, the, the personal relationship out of here. He's saying he and, and him. He's not saying our or my. He continues on. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So I think he kind of generalizes it, but Jesus gives him the benefit of the doubt. 
Because I believe Jesus is saying, okay, here, you've got, you've got the right orthodoxy. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Why do I say that he had the right orthodoxy? I think that the scribe knew the right belief. He knew the right belief. He knew what it is that he had to do, but he didn't practice it. And that's why Jesus says, you're so close. You've got the right understanding here. You've got good orthodoxy, but your orthopraxy, it's lacking here. You're so close to the kingdom of God. Like, you're so close, you could probably almost taste it. But the problem is, your life isn't backing up your beliefs. And I think that that's, when we're talking about a biblical worldview, we have to lay that on the table. Am I going to say, I believe this, and then walk away from that and live some other way? If you, if you do, that, that, that's not a belief. That's just like, yeah, you're, you're, you're cognitively accepting that. But your life isn't displaying that. How does Jesus say that, that, that people will know his disciples, not only by their love, but by their what? By their fruit, right? What, what, what is fruit? It's what is displayed from a plant, Right? So, so Jesus saying, is saying, you got the right orthodoxy, you got the right thought, but your, your practice is lacking here. If we're going to talk about a biblical worldview, and we're going to talk about being in the kingdom of God, and in the, the weeks to come, a few weeks, actually a couple months from now, we're going to have a, a series on what is the kingdom of God. But understanding if we're, 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 our, our goal is to operate in the kingdom of God as children of God, Jesus is saying here to this scribe, which the scribe was one of the most learned people of the time here. He's one of the religious leaders. He, he would be considered a lawyer. Jesus is saying, you got the right thinking, but man, you're, you're not following through. It's kind of like when I, Gabe was pitching the other day and he would throw and he would stop like right here and the ball would go not where he wanted it to go. It's because he's not coming all the way through. He's not following through. The practice is the follow through. Practice is the followers. So we can't just have, I'm thinking this way, we have to have our practice back up the way in which we think. And if, let's put it in practical terms here. Your life has to display your heart. You should not have to convince anyone, I'm a Christian. If you're trying to, if you, if you have to have had that conversation, and you're, you're convincing, you're trying to tell them, yeah, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I'm not saying that you're not. I'm not, not saying that, but, 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 but your, your life's not, not, not backing up what it is that your beliefs are. And, and I'll go out on a limb to say that in a time of struggle or a time of tragedy, your beliefs are shaken as well. We have to have that right belief and we have to have that right practice. Because a biblical worldview, and I said this last week, a biblical worldview is necessary to communicate God's love and hope during these crazy events of life. We have to have this. We have to understand that our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy has to be balanced. And we, we have to understand that, that we are to display God's love and display God's hope by the way in which we live our lives. Not just what we say. There's a lot of people out there who say a lot of things. But their lives don't back up what it is that they're saying. Are you going to be perfect in this? No. But you can train to be better, right? We talk about training and not just trying. We can train to be better. 
Part of that training is understanding the truths of the gospel. And we're going to, the plane is, is on approach now. We're circling the, 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 the runway. We're getting ready to, to, to come down and to, to, to land here. Because I, I said early on that a God-honoring perspective or a worldview, a biblical worldview, is established and sustained by the gospel. I think that there's three important truths of the gospel that you have to, you got to chew on. You got to meditate on. You got to write them down, put them on the doorposts of your house. You got to, you've got to um, not only hear these, you've got to accept these. The first truth of the gospel. And, and here, when I'm, when I'm talking these truths of the gospel, I'm talking to believers in Jesus Christ. Because there are two people in this world, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. The Bible says those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus, those are children of God. Those who have not put their uh, faith and their trust in Jesus, it said, the Bible says those are the children of the devil or of darkness. Now, I, I don't take pleasure in that. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page and understand that when we're talking about truths of the, of the gospel, these are things that apply to God's children. And not everybody's God's children. My prayer is that everyone here is, if you're not, I mean, we've got to have a conversation. Because I'm not going to be the one that's going to puff out my chest and say, I'm, you know, I'm one of God's elect and you're not. Well, here's the deal. I want everybody to be on Team Jesus. I want, I want heaven to be so full that they've they got to bring in overflow seating. I want everybody to be on Team Jesus. And I think that understanding the truths of those who are on Team Jesus, the truths of the gospel are important. The first one. And I'll, I'll, I'll just give it to you. The first one, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, nor nothing you can do to make him love you less. Let that hit for a second, because too many people are trying to impress God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you are going to do to impress God more, to have him love you any more than he already does. Look with me real quick. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus laying down his life for us. How much more can God love you? Romans 5, 8 says that, that God shows his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He shows us love for us. And that while we were enemies of him, and I've explained it in the past, like we were Osama bin Laden towards God. That's when he died for us. So when we, we hear this truth that there's nothing that you can do, there's no mistake in which you will make that God's going to love you any less either. He loves you more. He, he, there's nothing you're going to do to make him love you any more. There's nothing you're going to do to make him love you any less. Yeah, but I've messed up. Yes. Guess what? He knew it before he even loved you. Well, wait a second. He's always loved you. I, I, I love the thought that, that some people, that, that, that Spurgeon says. God, he says that he knows that God chose him before he was born. Because God knows he wouldn't have chosen them afterwards. <laughs> right? No, God knows what you're going to do. 
God knows what you're going to do before you do it. God has looked and seen that you're going to be an idiot in some sense, form, or fashion. But he still loves you. Now, I'll say that, and I'm not saying that that's a license to sin. Like, you can, I can, so fine, if God's going to love me no matter what, the same, I can do whatever I want. No, the apostle Paul makes it very clear that, 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 that God's grace is not a license to sin. And he argues that if you, if you have that mindset, then you need to reevaluate if you really truly understand the gospel. You need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because when we understand and we, we, we fully grasp to our capacity what took place on the cross, and we understand it, that God didn't, didn't die for our comfort. He died to provide salvation for us. That's going to make all the difference in the world. Well, that kind of sounds weird. I can't, I can't say that to my friend. It's the truth. And, and, and God says very clearly it's the truth that's going to set you free. If you're living a life of bondage, you need the truth spoken into your life. So there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, nor nothing you can do to make him love you less. The second one, his presence and approval is what brings you everlasting joy. Being accepted and approved by God is what brings joy. Not being accepted and approved by those sitting around you. Now, now I'm not saying that you just give everybody the deuces and say, I don't need y'all. No, God has you in community for a reason. But what you need to understand is your, your spouse, your children, your career, your hobby, whatever. That is not what, what is, is the ultimate um, uh, source of joy. The unfading ultimate source of joy comes from the presence and the approval of God. Because any one of those things and many more that I, that I mentioned, any one of those things are going to crumple under the weight of your worship. Because there's only one worthy of your worship, and that's God. And we need to understand that it's his presence and his approval that will bring us everlasting joy. So it's, yeah, there are things that are, that, that there are people who are going to think a certain way about me. And I know what I need to do is not give in to what, what the world thinks of me. And I need to understand what God thinks of me. And that's why we talk a lot about the, the, our, our identity in Christ. That we are accepted. That there's significance and we're secure. Because it's, at the end of the day, the devil's going to throw everything he has at you to get you to doubt, to get you to, I don't know. But it's his presence, his approval is what brings you everlasting joy. Let me throw a passage at you real quick. First uh, Peter chapter 1. It'll come up on the screen if you don't turn there. But First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. So his presence and approval is what brings everlasting joy. The last one is my favorite. Actually, I like them all, but You can measure his love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. 
If you're asking that question of, I don't know if God loves me, just think about how much he does love you. You can measure his love by the cross, right? Like, 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 Like my kids used to say when they were young, bunches and bunches and bunches and bunches. How much is that? Bunches and bunches and bunches and bunches. We can measure God's like, well, we shouldn't do that. Absolutely you should. God wants you to know how much he loves you. He loves you more than you love you. And some of you are like, hmm, that's a lot. I know, right? There is no one in here who loves you more than God loves you. But it's not all about love. That, that, that love, I'm not going don't, to, don't hear me say, don't, don't hear something I'm not going to say, but that love would, would really be um, without meaning if it didn't have power behind it. It's not just love, it's power. How's the power measured? It's by the resurrection. He loved you so much to die on the cross, but his power, and you're like, well, wait a second. I'm in a crazy situation. Yeah, last time I checked, Jesus rose from the dead. If he can overcome Satan's sin and death, I think he's got you covered in whatever situation you're facing. But what the devil wants to do is he wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you bogged down. He wants to keep you in bondage. What we have to understand is the power is from God. It's not from you. And his power has already been displayed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we're thinking about this, we can, hey, John 3.16 is the perfect one to go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How much does God love me? He sacrificed his son for you. So if you ask that question, look. Look at what the promise is. Look what the truth of the Bible says. We're going to talk about, can I have a, a worldview in a world that's crumbling? Absolutely. If you don't have a biblical worldview in a world that's crumbling, you're going to be with everybody else and hopeless. My, my goal in the last couple of weeks was just to, to um, help you on this journey. Help us understand that, 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 yeah, we live in this crazy, jacked up world, but it doesn't mean that we don't have any hope.